0: Welcome to the Femininja podcast. This series was co-curated and co-hosted with our friends at Whose Knowledge. These episodes were recorded during the Decolonizing the Internet East Africa Gathering in Lusaka, Zambia. Welcome to yet another episode of Decolonizing
1: the Internet. My name is Sylvia Kerubo from the African Women's Development and Communications Network. And I'm here with...
0: You're here with Yulendri Apasami. And I am the communications associate for the Visible Wiki Woman campaign at Whose Knowledge? And we also have our lovely guest.
2: Yeah, my name is Aria JP Carrijo. And yes, I'm, I'm an ideal guest. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, uh-huh. so tell us more about yourself. Tell us, you know, where you come from, your country, your organization, you, your passions. You know what you do on a day-to-day basis.
2: Well, that's that's a lot. Um, so let's see uh, about myself. I like using. Um, so if you've been on my socials, what I use as a standard introduction because that whole question of "tell me about yourself" has always been difficult. And so I found, so for me, the way I do it is I, I introduce myself using absolutes. And that's so,
1: <laughs> mm, that's go for okay. it.
2: And so, yeah, the main absolute is that I'm a human being. So, so that's me. Uh, sometimes I might, I, might, I might break down that humanity of mine. And so, for example, I exist as a transgender woman, it's part of my humanity. I love as a lesbian. That's also part of my humanity. And the way my viewpoint of the world and the way I tend to see the world is through an African feminist lens. So so I fight as a feminist. It's and easy. I like using that as my introduction.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and now we have that introduction recorded, so you can just play it for other people when they ask you this question. They go into this podcast. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And are there any um, affiliations or organisations you want to give a shout-out to in terms of the work that you do Mm. and uh, who you feel connected to in a more professional workspace?
2: (laughs) Well, shout-outs. Well, I mean, if it's connections, I'll give it to us knowledge uh, because a lot of connection there (laughs) from the work last year. But also, yeah, a lot of uh, Kenyan especially LBQ and transgender activist groups, community groups, because the fact that I get to be on podcasts and in media is just because of the work they do not. Yeah, so recognition to all of those. And
0: so, Aria, tell us, in your day-to-day job, the one that pays the bills, <laughs> how does uh, the internet factor into the work that you do? And maybe a second part to that question is, generally, then how does decolonizing, not only the internet, but the different spaces and social realities that you exist in, come into your Mm day-to-day?
2: Interesting. Maybe I'll start with decolonizing. And I think it's something I was talking about over lunch, that there is this... There's an opportunity for everyone to decolonize. So not just for us as former colonies of some European nation or not for just uh, peoples whose ancestors, descendants of people were enslaved and not just for which other group. Indigenous folks who lived on ancestral lands which were taken away from them. So decolonization is not just for us, it's also for the descendants of colonisers because their ancestors had their minds colonised to see the world in a certain way, to believe that certain groups of people are lesser than than they were, to believe their religion was (laughs) was saving other nations of the world from... I don't know, bringing them into the light, literally, when they are are the only way of connecting with the divine and with the universe. So just believing that your way to connect with all of this was superior, and their descendants need to walk away from that. And so for me, decolonization is not just reserved for groups. It's something all of us can do. It's for men to decolonize from the fact that they believe that they're the gender that's better than the other genders, because that's also a colonial mindset. And yeah, so decolonization is for all of us. And for the groups that I work with on a day to day, especially queer folks, it's important because if you look at a lot of um, African traditions and Asian traditions, uh queerness was part of it. So from one of my peoples of origins, um people were people did not fit into the gender binary were taken as the um the medicine people of that community. So and I remember in grade school we were taught about the medicine men. And then <clears throat> when I came into activism I actually found you know they, they weren't really medicine men the men who occupied a space that was both feminine and masculine. Feminine in terms of how they wore their address and feminine in terms of what they they were to the community because we come from a community that was traditionally warriors, which was fighting men. And they found for the balance of this community, they needed to have someone occupy that powerful feminine figure, and so they chose this non-binary person who could either get married to women or men, and and they called this person a mugwe. And this person literally used to tie their left hand um, until when they had to bless the community and they will unwrap the hand and bless the community and then wrap it again. And that was symbolic of the femininity of 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 the community. So, and there's, there's all these stories and cultures. Uh, there's one, uh, this one is from the Kikuyu tribe, and uh, this young person told me that their, um, their grandmother saw them and they are struggling with their gender, like, um, to find their place in this world, in the gender they occupied. And their grandmother was like, oh, you know, in, in our times, we just send it to walk around the tree like the mogomo tree, and when you walked back, you are exactly the person you you feel that you are, and that's how old treat you. So, and the fact that we have all these things that were not either documented, or not unless you find good grandmothers who can remember, because a lot of them will just tell you, "Oh, we found Christianity; we left all those things behind." But there's all these gems of, of um of queer traditions. There was a bunch of tribes in Kenya, the Kikuyu, the Kamba, the Kipsigis, the Nandi, some of which are some of my origins, who had women marrying each other. So, and yeah, some of this is lost. A few of it is found in ethnographies by uh, a few white men who documented that, even if the documentation was skewed, and they will say, I didn't want to speak to those women, but yeah, they were actually married and I wrote it down. So I, I think decolonizing means for me and, and for you know these communities we kind of are activists for, for me decolonizing would mean finding these um, small pieces of heritage and using them to define what our future looks like. So lot Of our cultures have been erased, but it's possible to pick bits and pieces. So it's possible to say, Oh, you know, uh, this meru tribe had uh, non binary medicine men, or oh, the Kikuyu women used to get married, and the Kamba people had three genders. So it's okay in shaping our Kenya and African future to pick bits and pieces of this heritage and say, The the state i want to live in or the country or the region or the world i want to live in should have these bits and pieces of things that were found in my in my people's way of being before colonization so that's what decolonizing means for me and i think that's what should mean for you know queer africa like the fact that we're all stuck with laws laws that criminalize us and laws that directly from the empire, especially the British empire, then one way to become free, one way to make queer Africa free, is to lose that last bit of being colonised, to literally decolonize. Mm
0: -hmm. So as you're talking, I was thinking about how those sense of freedoms as well as queer archiving of ancestries, of stories, how would you say... That translates or doesn't translate itself in online spaces.
2: So yeah, the, the first the first place I ever found anyone talking about queerness and Africanness, like in one in one discussion, was I found it on Instagram and this young person, the name is Madi Blaze, and they had it on their timeline. And I think it was part of either their master's degree or their doctorate. I'm not sure what it is. But then they had like, collections from Angola, from Zimbabwe, from Kenya about all these queer African cultures. And that for me was, it was like really eye-opening. I was like, wait, because for a long time, i had always been made to feel an African because I look a certain way. And so the assumption is, I, I've always tried to figure it out, but if, you, if your life doesn't look like the box... Then you're kind of regarded as a you know someone who does not belong, and they always will get that question, Oh, where are you from? because the assumption was um, I can't be Kenyan, <laughs> but yeah. So, when I found this article, well, a series of posts, and I was like, Wait, like, there's actually validity to me being African and being Kenyan more than. Actually, more validity than the people always keep asking, "Are you Canadian?" Because yeah, and, and so that kind of sent me to this whole research or exploration phase. And I think so. It was always either on, on Instagram. There's always either Matthew Place or a lock a lockman who always like keeps posting like all of these and books. And yes, yeah, so I went off on a thing to find my own. But, I mean, talking about archiving and documenting, I think they've both done, like, a really good job. So Alok reads books and then does, like, an Instagram book review. So it's small slides to to break down the book. Uh, and I think it's important to have it because it's important to have it in a place here. Yeah? Because, like I mentioned, I mentioned Kikuyu women marrying each other. And the ethnographer who did that was, who documented that was uh, Leakey, I think the older Leakey, Dr. Leakey, And he only used two pages to talk about uh, these women who married each other. In modern day terms, we'd call them lesbians or suffix. But he, he wrote only two pages about them in an ethnographic study, which was... I think almost 1,000 pages, it was like really long. And he felt that it would be lower than his standards to have a conversation with these women. And so he actually spoke to the men around them and asked them, well, what's what's their relationship? Of course, the men minimised it and were like, oh, you know, they're married for inheritance. So they never, they kind of dismissed it. But he wrote two pages to his credit and, and he always admits, you know, I didn't talk to them because it didn't feel right or important. And, but it's better than the others because you put two pages somewhere. One other colonizer I know is Lugard. And Lugard wrote back home and said, you know, I've seen women in relationships with each other, but I believe one is like the slave master and the other one is like the slave, like... I can't see how two women can be together. So, so the thing is, if if queer folks living in the 21st century do not pick these tiny pieces of recording, because there's nothing else left. Like, literally, if I go to an older person in the community, they don't remember their lives pre-Christianity, pre-colonization. And this. We are talking older, like 90 years old, 100. Um, they might remember a few pieces of things, but they always wind the story by telling you, oh, "But we became Christians." Why are you asking about those old things? And so, it's important for us, like, to to capture these bits and pieces of stories that are still out there, and then have them somewhere in a repository—I don't know, Wikipedia or something. But they need to be somewhere, and they need to be, you know, preserved, just because. If, if we're going to create some future or future ways of being, then we need to have, is it a reference point, something we can pick, something, you know, like we don't need to create from, we can create from our imaginings of what a humane society, a just society will be. But it's always, it's always easy to do that if you have some reference back, something to not anchor, but almost validate, I'm not sure what that will be, but it's nice to have these, you know, sources you can go back to and say, you know, there used to be something. And um, I'm not just building from the blue, I'm reframing from a basis, because, well, I'm sure those those African cultures that may have been bad to queer folks, but, yeah, like, we don't have to pick the bad things when we have a choice of picking, like, the really basic things and making them into some beautiful future. So that that's the role I will see for for repositories and, you know, putting knowledge in some place. Mm. Then if someone else is ever going to go looking, they won't have the same uh, challenges I had, like looking for piece, <laughs> bits and pieces of information, I've, you know, in, in an ethnography, in a few paragraphs in someone else's work and, it's like such disparate pieces of information, and then and then I feel like they're all sitting with me as separate pieces from elsewhere, so the idea will be like to move all of this and put it somewhere where someone else can just go and find, okay, these are the sources, and this is this is all the ammunition you need to go create this future you're looking for. I, I think uh.
0: the Wikipedia Queer user group. Uh, would love that information yeah. <laughs> and would love that archiving <laughs> up there. And I totally hear you with um, understanding queer pasts as queer futures because there is a, a line of continuity, and colonialism was a huge and violent rupture. But who's not to say that we have queer ancestors? And even with my history, of indentureship in South Africa, queer people were not recognized or written about. And I'm in a collective of queer Indian South Africans and we are wondering where our ancestors. (laughs) And so you read and look at the archives and you imagine these Hmm. platonic intimacies maybe as something else, right? As maybe male-male intimacy or women in relationships with other women. So um, I hear you on the you're finding it and you're the node. And maybe that's where internet and online spaces can be that potential of bringing all those pieces together and keeping them together for young queer Africans to find that. And instead of going through the kind of hard work and the struggles maybe we've gone through and older queer Africans have gone through um, to, to figure out and piece together our histories in that way. So... I want to take us from that space into thinking about how the past few days have been in terms of what you're interested in your day-to-day, what the work you do in your day-to-day, and how the DTI East Africa Conference convening um, has fed into, you know, your thoughts and your thinking about your work.
2: I think I'll start with a bit of what it has fed into my thoughts Like the online space, we can curate it to be with all our aspirations. Like the things we want to see in the world, we can actually get an online reflection of that and then do the reverse. Instead of saying the online is influenced by the physical, we can now ask the physical to be influenced by the online. So if people say, oh, we don't have women leaders, and you can be like, oh, but in the online space, there is women you Know leading these forums or creating these forums, so uh, are you afraid of having them lead in a you know, particular sector in government or particular space and things like that? And yeah, but that's that's my imagination, but that was sparked by some of the conversations we had today. Uh, the other thing I think it's nice, like post pandemic, just to meet human beings like. Well, I mean, COVID is not over, but yeah, for literally two years of of, uh, pandemic-induced non-mobility and lockdown and all those kind of things. So I just, and I think this has been, uh, I think, my second large meeting. So it's really beautiful just meeting um, other feminists from different movements, you know, not necessarily the queer movement. And then just saying that our beliefs about what the world should be, whether and the world is being online, the world being the planet that we occupy in terms of, you know, climate change and all those kind of things. Because being in a feminist space doesn't doesn't get narrowed down to to one topic; it literally covers all the topics. Um, around our existence about covers about being human, like last week I was from one other meeting, and this felt like a you f- no. um, is it like a breath of fresh air, just like what the conversations and the uh, people and it didn't feel like work. I know there's a lot of work going on. I think there shouldn't be a separation between work and being, but in the event that there was a separation, this will fall into being more than <laughs> into work. And again, because work has taken on this whole uh, drudgery, capitalistic kind of setup. But yeah, if it was to put this, it will not go into that drudgery, capitalistic setup. It will go into these parts of, of being and existing and, and living. So I think this is what um, the convening these two days has been. Just yeah, meeting people I like and meeting people I met during the pandemic and I was hoping to ever meet them at some point and now we all met here. So that was really nice.
1: <laughs> so we have talked a lot about decolonizing the internet and how important the internet is, you know, to the work that we do. Yeah. What would you like to tell the listeners? You know, we'll have audiences listening to this podcast. What is your message to them with regards to decolonization and even the queer community and how it all ties into it?
2: I don't have so much to tell people, but I think the may not be... I think it's my outlook on all of this. It's like we need to humanize things. I, I feel all these conversations are about humanizing spaces, so humanizing the online space, humanizing our physical space. And yeah, I think I'll just tell people to humanize. I mean, I also want to share a bit of fears that I have, like about trends. It's a trend I've noticed. So like on Twitter, Twitter used to be this space where you could engage with anyone. So someone will be, you know, like a PhD and they're running like a thread about their research And anyone, literally anyone, could just get on there and be like, "Oh, I'm learning this," or ask questions, and you could challenge politicians based on their policy, and it will just be, you know, place for conversation. And I think a lot of the social media used to be that. I think Facebook also, I mean, the corporate-owned social media. So a lot of them were these for people, like any. And I know there was there was a joke in Kenya and Nairobi and that, you know, I'm tweeting from Kino, which will, Kino is like, well, considered one of those places to live, settlement. So yeah, it, it was always that kind of a joke that, yeah, I'm engaging you as a politician, but I could be living in I could be living in Kibra or Kino or, or Mukuru, but because we're on Twitter together, I can I can go ahead on with you and have, uh, have a conversation. And, and that's the beauty of it, that world freedom. But then... Over time, especially this year that Kenya has been going through like an election period, I've noticed a lot of the conversations are not conversations anymore. It's people either being bigoted or just telling insults. And especially young Kenyan people have picked up, it's like an hashtag. And they say, literally it will be said as violence, but to avoid being flagged, they put it as violence, so V A W U, L E N C E, and and you know they just troll people and reply, literally throw insults and then hashtag it as violence, and also you know, the continuous trolling of women, so literally just post, someone will post a picture and saying you know I'm I'm doing something today, eating out, playing golf, and people will sexualize our or do whatever and so it's it's such a trend that the freedom this space is offered is also like open to abuse and open to be used as an abusive space to to other people and that all thinking that you know the the online you know with my dream of the online space being um you know, the place that we curate so that now the physical can learn from it. I think for that to happen, then there has to be some level of not really like censorship. It would be nice for everyone to keep having this ability to just speak up. But it would also be nice if the online spaces offered them a point of learning because I feel a lot of these people... They don't have the material to engage in, something to bite in so that you can talk about. So if you can't if you can't engage constructively on a topic, you just choose one liner, send memes that are insulting towards people. So because you can't keep a, you can't keep up a sustained engagement or conversation. So the easy out for you is to just add an insult, sexualize someone. Like, I mean, we've had a very interesting discussion. I'm talking about history three and, you know, things that used to be there and things that were in ethnographies. You can't have this kind of a discussion with, with, for lack of a better word, your regular day-to-day Kenyan because for them it's like, why is that important for me? Like, I just need somewhere to hustle Literally to hustle and pray, but yes, <laughs> it's, hustle
0: and pray. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but yeah, it's we've almost come down to that, and it's it's getting harder and harder to convince people of like a more humane, a more a more human centered world is the way to go, because they still people believe in like, you know, powering through situations like powering through, meaning extracting from the world, powering through, meaning extracting from other people. And this whole idea of, you know, more humaneness and caring for people like, you know, mental well-being, uh, human rights, for them this seem like unnecessary things, like a burden onto, onto the important things in life, which for them is kind of making it, making it meaning having the amount of financial well-being. This life like that everyone has always called the American dream, but literally it's now the Kenyan dream. It's the dream for like whichever other country that has been colonized or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like a new colonization of the mind. Mm-hmm. And so for them, it's all these other discussions of being a better human race seem to be an inconvenience, and they shoot it down with with an insult or a trolling meme, then they'll target violence, and and so, yeah, I, I think for me this is, if the school system is not giving this, um well, and a lot of, I'm stereotyping when I say young, but it always feels like it's a lot of the younger folks on in these spaces. But the school system are you not know, giving them the material they need for having, you know, conversations about what what the world should look like. And so my thinking is, is it possible for not just online space to be the space where we shape this future world, or even as part of building this future idealistic world online first? is there a place where we curate or create a repository for truth? Because I feel that's becoming like a less and less uh, available commodity, commodifying truth. But yeah, I think truth should be out there in some some format Mm. and in a better format than than the fine print (laughs) that is in user agreements of things. It Mm -hmm. should be better than that. And it should be so pervasive that that people can only avoid it when they intentionally do not want to see it. We can have a lot of freedom online and, you know, freedom of existence, freedom of discussion, but if there's no material for discussion, then I think we'll just give freedom to a new kind of bigotry and chaos and people dismissing, uh, you know, valid arguments with, you know, online as, you know, one liner's like, this is not how God intended it. Or one liner's like, in Kenya, these are popular. One, and it says, the law is very clear. The person quoting this will know almost zero about the law. Mm-hmm. But they're just going to reply to you with a one-liner saying, you know, the law is very clear. Yeah, but these are random thoughts. And such thoughts I've been having, sitting in this space with other feminists and talking about things. <laughs>
1: No, I I, I agree with you, actually, because you obviously have to think about, you know, your safety. And because coming, I think Africa is a very conservative continent. And sometimes I feel like people just refuse to embrace knowledge and information. And so even as we think of the marginalized communities, as we think of, you know, more inclusion and communication, and how we how we will be represented in all our diversities, I think we should also like talk about creating a space where women feel safe, you know because we've had so many women leave the internet mm-hmm. because of how you know women are portrayed, and I think it's also a discussion we need to really constantly have because even the way you know you're told oh. You shouldn't be with a babe who's online. You shouldn't, you know, as a, as you know, this perfect woman, you shouldn't be, you know, vocal or, or stuff like on the internet. I don't think white women get that. <laughs> Probably because the white men don't reason like that. But besides the point, I feel like there's so much information and so much decolonization of the mind that needs to happen, especially, can I say, like African men?
0: Of course. Because
1: Because they're the most, like, they're they're the danger to us. You know, they're the reason why we're so scared of the internet. They're the reason why, and all this stems from that socialization, like how they've been brought up. And it's a very colonized mind. And so, if we can be able to educate, uh, it's it's hard. But if we can be able to, like, educate them and, you know, give them all this information, then they can also help us create this space, this safe space for the women of color. Because, to be honest, we are the most affected. So hopefully even as we continue with DTI, as we continue, you know, with these discussions, and we will be able to touch on those topics and, you know, like, just mobilize women and even men to be able to talk about why we want to decolonize the internet and why we want to make it safe. For all the women, all the all the women of color in all our diversities, yeah,
0: yeah, mm-hmm. and all the queer people, the non-binary people, yeah. the gender queer people. Um, I do have a question about that. About um, the burden of teaching, mm-hmm. right? And if not if, as we are living through the world, experiencing it as we do. I kind of wonder where the responsibility of education, of the truth, of, you know, that ends up landing. It ends up landing on feminists. It ends up landing on people who have experienced much of the hardships of living, not on governments, not on men, to be teaching and telling each other. And for us... It's it's through our lived experiences, but they don't have those lived experiences to feel that necessity of we need to do better. Mm -hmm. No, I agree. I
1: remember um, I don't remember what I don't remember her name, and we were trying to to let her know, like you know, you see points of education, but then sometimes you're dealing with someone who just doesn't wanna. They just don't want to listen to what you're saying because to them, they already have this belief. You know, they really, their mind is set that you know, you're not supposed to exist in this world. You are inferior, or you know, like you get what I mean. Like, and I feel like when I when I say point of education, the burden doesn't have to be on us, because even as you, as not argue, but as you go back and forth with someone, you will know, you you can be able to tell if this is a person who is asking because they're curious and they want to learn or this is someone who just wants to annoy you. Mm. You know, you can I feel like by by now you, you can we've been online for so long. I feel like by now you can tell. You can really tell. And you can always choose to move away from such a space, but if you're using your platform to educate and inform, I feel like you you, you can you can continue doing that because you will always reach someone who wants to learn. You will you can always choose not to engage with someone who just wants to annoy you. But I don't feel like that burden should be on us. They have access to materials. They have access to the internet. They have access to all this information. But they're just choosing not to. And they're choosing to annoy you. And that's that's how I feel. I,
2: I guess I guess I would agree with you. I I mean when when I was sort of coming into being and a huge part of that was like trying to understand myself and because literally, you know, there are people who have this um, stereotype that being queer is taught, like, like who taught you to be queer, but literally what, what is taught in our systems is being heteronormative, yeah, like being straight, being straight, <laughs> being straight is what is taught, you know, from grade two, you already have pictures of what, what a normal couple should look like, what a girl and a boy should be, and that's all, you know. So, And for a queer person in my generation, which was kind of pre-internet, it, it was really hard to find information about about me, about being where I was. And when I found all of this, and for a long time after, I thought what was lacking in the world was knowledge. Like, oh, you know, these people don't really hate me. It's just that they don't know. And so I, I will spend all my time online trying to educate, educate people, yeah, inform, and educate like long articles. Mm. I love like the longest pieces. When someone asked a question on Twitter, I'll be doing answering, mm. and
0: um, and you spend time and mm-hmm. effort, and you find your resources and references, yes. and then you just get some hateful comments. I was literally or no the response, person sorry.
2: would tweet with. Um, Reference to academic papers, so after all the queer East, queer African history be like, Oh, if you really want to go read more about this, here's a paper, and here is this here is this and <laughs> it it took me a while to figure out some people are just obtuse. use, and, yeah, and they don't want they just read don't. they're not looking for references, and I guess the one instance I had of that was uh. Again, I got into this discussion with a Ugandan televangelist, and so we had a whole thread of an exchange, and and I was quite, I was telling him you know about queer queer African cultures, and even asked my tribe and I told him I was like oh, I'm from different tribes of origin, but these are the ones, then. But all the time he was asking me about my tribe, he was trying to invalidate to say that these tribes didn't have a queer culture. Mm. And so when I presented to him this and I was like, oh, this was their queer culture. And then so some random person joined into a conversation and he was like, it's a lie. So I was like, you know, like, we've been on this thread for a while. Like yeah. I have kind of have my facts laid out so you can't just answer with a three-letter sentence. (laughs) Like, it's (laughs) a lie. You need to come better than that. And so this guy goes, um, and it's okay to kill a few minorities for the well-being of the majority. I was like, wait, you'll really kill us for something that I just showed you is a false belief. And so this televangelist now joins back in. And he tells me, you know, I can see you've been schooled in queer theology and you are to misguide the simple-minded, like like the person saying we should be short. And he's like, but I've learned to deal with people like you. So like, really, like, we, we've had a conversation, you've not addressed any of the history and all the mm. free education I'm giving on this thread. Yeah. But you're just going to agree the person who said we should all be lined up and short because... You're suggesting, you know, there's nothing around of AK-47s we want to do. And mm. and and so and the previous year, November, the, there's a documentary by the Pope, Pope Francis, mm-hmm. and in it he talks about, you know, even if he can't change church rules, like immediately he would encourage states to make sure that queer people should, can have family, can, you know, be themselves... And so I asked this person, I'm like, okay, the Pope said this in his documentary. And he was like, no, the Pope is apostate. I was like, really? Like, so every religious person who's going to say something in support of us is now ungodly. Yeah, mm-hmm. And I think that was my point of beginning now to analyze every conversation I get into and be like, okay, is this person in it, like, they really want to learn stuff or they just want to be combative. I've, I've had one with a a UK-based feminist. She's, she's a little and she's a tough, like, trans-exclusionary feminist. Oh. Yeah. And, and this one was... Oh. Um, I, I think the discussion was about how... Same discussion we've had about our colonisation, like, race, like, queerness and queer Africa. And she like, oh, but by even calling yourself transgender, you're already using a Western term. And like, you, you know, so I'd at least I'd, it was, it was a thread with someone else. And so I'd used a lot of terms. I'd used terms like, you know, female sons and, um, male, male daughters, which is an Igbo term that represents, the people are have fluid between genders. Mm-hmm. Literally that's how it translates from Igbo, female sons and male daughters. And then, so she goes on and she's like, oh, these um, DSA people uh, that you're referring to female sons, I'm like, that's an African reference. I'm not referring, I don't know what the hell you mean by DSA. I'm assuming you mean intersex persons. Mm-hmm. But within the Igbo, this term does not refer to intersex persons. It's, it's, it's a term about gender, not about sex. Mm-hmm. So by you assuming that when I use transgender person, I mean it in the same way a UK trans person sees it or a US person, you're the one in the wrong. Like mm. literally, I'm talking, I'm using, I've owned this term for myself. It, what being transgender means to me, being an African trans woman, it does not mean, it does not mean, um, you know, the stereotype that the West does it, that you're becoming, um, quote unquote, a real woman or racist gender woman. I'm not becoming that. I'm becoming myself, which is which is a very different thing. And so, at that point, she got off the argument. But yeah, again, just this world, people just get into arguments because they're not there to learn. They're just, they just are to be obtuse and to be bigoted and all that. But yes, it was it was interesting.
0: <laughs> well, thank you so much for. Like schooling us on queer African histories, on telling us more about what decolonizing generally and what decolonizing the internet specifically means for you. Mm -hmm. I have one last question. If there is anything else you would like to tell our listeners um, that we haven't covered here, something really important, here's your space. Feel free.
2: No, I I feel like we've covered everything Plus, at this rate we're never gonna end. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Okay. I feel like we've covered everything. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, to yeah thank you talk. so
1: much for honoring to
2: rant everything. and to open. Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. I know it's it's been oh it's been a very deep session. But thank you so much for honoring our invitation and we would really love to like have more conversations with you. Fortunately, you know, we are pressed for time, but I'm pretty sure we can have, you know, we can use other platforms to be able to, like, spread the word. But really appreciate having you here. Thank you so much, Aya.
2: Always. You're welcome. Hey.
0: hey! Thank you, thank you,
1: thank you very much for joining us for the Femininja Podcast. We really believe and trust that you have enjoyed our conversations and they have pricked some thinking, some 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 kind of wanting to find out more about feminism, about patriarchy, and what is the role for each one of us in detonating patriarchy and proudly and boldly claiming ourselves as feminists. So stay tuned, keep following us, engage with us on FemNet website www.femnet.org.
0: Thank you. You can follow Whose Knowledge on Twitter at Who's Knowledge.